but going uh, with Jumia, we're not so sure anymore. Wait, am I mixing Jumia up now with with Conga? Sorry, I'm mixing Jumia up with Conga. My bad. Taking all that back. and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 124. This is where we round up the most important tech, digital and innovation highlights from across the African continent. My name is Andile Masubu. So glad you could join us. And once again, alas, I'm rolling without my regular co-host, Musa Kalenga, who's busy being great somewhere else. <laughs> uh, but standing in for him is good friend of the show and one half of the founding management team at Secha Capital, Rushil Valap. Welcome, Rushil. Thank you for having me. Good to be back in, in this seat, Andila. Yeah, dog. It's really nice to have you back. Uh, for real. Um, thanks for agreeing to jump on the mic with me. What you been up to, man? Um, we just closed our fourth investment, um, looking at raising additional capital. It's just been really busy. Um, looking forward to the, the end of the year, just putting our heads down and planning forward 2019. Basically, boom, boom, pow. Yep. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Sounds good. Listen, folks, we have a special guest in the building. Uh, Rochelle, you're special. But we have an extra special guest in the building. Grant Phillips, welcome to you, Grant. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely, absolutely. Grant is the founder and CEO of Philtech Consulting, and he happens to be partnered with both Convergence Partners and Stockdale Street. Uh, Stockdale Street, of course, being the Oppenheimer family's South African private equity outfit. Now, he's partnering with both Convergence Partners and Stockdale Street uh, to build out technology ecosystems across the continent. Um, You're going to have to explain what that means in a second, but uh, Grant was previously the CEO and chairman of CRB Africa, which, of course, is headquartered in Nairobi, Kenya, which is Africa's largest networked credit reference bureau and debt management outsource organization. Um, I believe they've been taken, they've been bought by TransUnion, correct? Yeah, wholly owned by uh, by TransUnion. All right. So um, you did that alongside being the CEO of TransUnion's Pan-Africa business. Uh, I was actually with Lee Nike, who, who took over from yeah. you uh, just the other day. And so, yeah, look, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, looking forward to it. Fantastic. Well, before we go anywhere, what does it mean to to be looking to build out technology ecosystems for the likes of uh, or with the likes of Convergence Partners in Stockdale Street? What does what does that involve? A good question. It's it's obviously quite a verbose aspiration, I guess. Yeah. Um, look, I think when you when you look at both outfits, they've got some very interesting investments, some very interesting assets and networks uh, across the continent, and I think. Um, you know, if you look at it from a convergence perspective, being being really big infrastructure investors across the continent, I think they felt that the next iteration um, was how do we take that infrastructure investment and further enhance kind of bridging this digital divide and, and how do we get that enablement ultimately to the consumer and, and make a real difference? Okay. And I think, um, you know, from both both sides, um, I think there was a natural realization that there was a gap in terms of the technology stack, the enablement, the product suite, and the product fit in particular for Africa, and and how do we go about solving that? Yeah, um, yeah. So that's the vision, that's the dream. Only a couple of shows ago, um, perhaps the last time we were actually in studio, we hypothesized that you know companies like Convergence Partners might need to start thinking in consulting terms around these issues because. When I think of convergence partners, I think pretty much of this 
uh, pretty nimble PE outfit with uh, a pretty impressive portfolio in infrastructure projects like CCOM, for example. Uh, and I don't necessarily think of them so much as um, having the the resource and the intelligence required to operate in those spaces beyond just putting money down. Absolutely. Is that I, fair I, to say? I, or, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, and, and I think is is largely the reason why um, we've partnered. Um, You know, I I come from a very much a a technology and and data-driven background, um, and a lot of my experience on the continent has been around enabling data to to make a difference and and become a real impact player on the continent. And I think, um, obviously, with with the balance sheets uh, that exist – um, and the the obvious willingness to to be a real impact investor on the continent, I think it's a very interesting fit. And and I think also is is we're very cognizant of the fact that you don't have to go out there and own everything. Yeah, you know you yeah. can you can partner smart and and make. Well, a unless real you're difference. Amazon and you kind of want to own enough. everything, Fair and enough. You, yeah. you can and yeah. do end yeah. up owning everything. Absolutely. <laughs> Which, no, and yeah. I, I think we're quite lucky that there's there's not a huge amount of brand ego uh, amongst yeah. all of us. So yeah. So you know, re- remind our listeners for those who don't who aren't familiar with Convergence Partners, like throughout throughout Ccom, like what else is in that portfolio? It's it's a very broad portfolio. Yeah. Um, as I say, across the continent, we've got investments um, in in West. Africa mm-hmm. uh, through Venture Garden. We've got operations now in Kenya as well, um, and and really a, a kind of Pan African player um, with platform aspirations. Clearly, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and and I think platforms in reality are probably the way of the future. And, yeah. and kind of how do you leverage platforms in a smart way to to make a difference? Yeah. Um, but as I say, and, and as you mentioned earlier, I think Convergence historically have been very, very focused on infrastructure investment and have made some really smart investments, some really good investments um, that have made a real difference uh, yeah. to the continent. And I think this feels to everyone like the, the obvious next iteration. And, yeah. and to your point is, is you know, wasn't their core skill set, and I think they were they realized that. And I, I think, um, you know, hats off to them to be very cognizant to say, well, let's go out to the market and let's find people who can jockey this in, in a clever way and and hopefully add some value to, to what we're trying to create. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think it's a pretty scary time to be in the consulting fraternity uh, because, yeah, things are changing in ways that, you know, we certainly didn't expect five years ago. And it makes for a really, really interesting um I suppose viewing for those of us on the sidelines, but talk to us a little bit about the the difference, perhaps, in approach and on the ground experience for the work you do within this within a similar genre, but for what's essentially a family a family interest, you know, a family office. So the Oppenheimer uh, family office. So you know, I, I think you know if you take a step back to to some of my career history is is you know I've been involved in startups historically, but most of my experience have been in in kind of big blue chip organisations around the globe, and I think um, a lot of that organisational knowledge and and kind of almost almost muscle memory, yeah. uh, you know, kind of is ingrained in a lot of the ways I approach stuff, and I, and I think you know I'm I'm an out and out business guy. I'm not a PE guy. Yeah. You know, I'm not an out and out tech guy. Yeah. But a lot of the experiences I've brought kind of resonate in our industry agnostic. Yeah. And, you know, particularly in, in my last couple of roles, I think um, you know, tech has been kind of front and center in terms of what we're trying to solve and how we leverage tech to do things smarter and in a better way and, and make a difference. Is this old money trying to do new things? <laughs> I, I think in a certain way, I you know, it's, you know, yes, you've got Stockdale Street who 
who have a, a relatively aged balance sheet, but they have a very diverse portfolio as well. You know, it's it. This is not their They're first. Not fresh no, this is not their first uh, dabble in, in technology. You know, they have existing technology investments. I think this is the next iteration of that in terms of what is the next generation of technology. And you know, I don't necessarily like the term, but everyone uses it in terms of fintech. Yeah. Um, and boots you know, on the ground. It sounds like like we actually need. Someone in the you know on the ground of the people like like someone who actually has on the ground experience, uh, pan African experience with a live network, yeah. actually like picking up what's what a smart play might feel and look like, which I suppose is the challenge for old money or incumbent money everywhere. I guess so, and and I think as well as it's it's a case of understanding is what's going to resonate to the consumer, to the market, to the client. Yeah. In 2020 and beyond, yeah, it's not trying to solve for today, yeah. Um, and I don't claim to have a crystal ball. I, I wish I did, uh, but I think you know a lot of the experiences, particularly on the continent, is I'm quite quite capable in terms of articulating what the demand is. Gotcha. Now that demand is evolving absolutely as the consumer becomes more educated, more digitally savvy, and and I guess exposed to to what is available in the market. And I think really. What we're trying to do is is how do we make that a reality um, in a really tangible way that really talks to digital inclusion, financial inclusion, and ultimately the upliftment both for, for the continent, but ultimately for our investors as well. Yeah. I'm going to say what I think a lot of our listeners are thinking, which is we need to get to know this guy because clearly he's a gatekeeper. Is that a fair assessment to make? Are you the guy whose um, sponsorship will be required to to loosen the purse strings around such matters at Convergence Partners or, you know, over at uh, Stakedale? Um, unfortunately not. Yeah, and I'm totally I, I, putting I, I you think, on the spot here no, because no, it's no, like, uh, no, we ha- Q emails. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've, I've just seen the, an email from the investment committee saying you are not judge and jury. So, yeah, yeah. so no, we, we, we have our ICs and we, and we have a very kind of disciplined approach to investment. So you're the, but you're a scout in some respects and you do factor in. I like to think I'm effectively trying to create the dream yeah. um, and, and making the dream real. Yes. And um, then you have like real um, sort of suits, like keeping you honest, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So listen, I've gone to some to some length to try and get to know you a little bit so that when we talk, people know who we're talking about. Rochelle's had the benefit of being on the show um, before, and I think our listeners certainly know him quite well. Just, I suppose, two more things to loosen us up um, before we jump straight into some of the, you know, more important highlights that have caught our editorial team's attention here at African Tech Roundup, and then we'll chat through those and have a discussion at the end um, regarding a, a very controversial question. Actually, quite a simple one, but controversial nonetheless. Is VC investing a Ponzi scheme? Hmm. That's all coming up much later. But first, what's on your pod? Uh, I almost said what's on your podcast. What What are you listening to in the car? What were you listening to on the car here? Um, in the car on your way here. Um, Rochelle? I like to my my arts and culture. Uh... Entertainment's usually not related to work. Okay, um, so yeah, which is fine. Which I'm is listening fine. to the serial at the moment. The podcast. To the, oh, the started. Latest. No, I've just started season one. I had yeah, you're late to the I'm party. Very late. Yeah. Um, well, season one was the best one. Yeah. So no. you're in the you know. So, okay. So, all right. I'm not saying it's downhill from there, but it was the best one. So <laughs> you're listening then, to podcasts uh, in the car. That and Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. Love that. That's amazing. Dig That's that. Yeah. Amazing. Really so, cool guy. Yeah. Love his books, love his podcasts. Uh, what are you listening to, Grant? 
So, and fortunately not as educational or as insightful as uh, <laughs> when I get into my car, unfortunately, my phone automatically connects and uh, and the music comes on. So, That's it's, right. uh, That's uh, right. look, I think on the way here, if I, if I think back, I think Kings of Leon were playing. Kings of Leon, okay. Um, but yeah, it, it tends to Stadium be by rock. large. Absolutely. It tends to be, it tends to be the phone or, or the iPod. And, um, okay. So you're keeping it epic. So I just imagine your, 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 your car is just... Yeah, yeah, it's one, pretty loud. It's, it's pretty, pretty loud. loud. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Look, I'm listening to Jonathan McReynolds. Um, he's got a new album out called Make Room. He's a gospel artist, but really, really great. I shouldn't say but. Um, he's ex- he's excellent. Incredible guitarist, pianist, um, songwriter, etc. So that's what I'm listening to. What are you guys reading as the final question? As sort of last. Yeah, this is slightly work-related. There's a great book called uh, How Brands Grow, version two. So it just talks about if you want to grow a brand, there's very concise ways of analyzing consumer trends, demographics, mm-hmm. store shelf space, those sorts of things. And, and are you reading this for the benefit of your investees? Yeah. yeah. So so trying to codify that in a way that's applicable to SMEs, because yeah. a lot of it talks about going by the Nielsen data, which costs you a million rand. You can't do that <laughs> as an SME. So how do you get around that? Yeah. Um, and then from the fun side, it's Moby Dick. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> All right. Yeah. What are you reading, Grant? So I'm pretty much at the end now of a, of a great book actually called uh, The Driver of the Driverless Car, mm. um, which really kind of talks to, uh, I guess, a, a view of the author around what skills are required uh, to be successful, to be relevant kind of in, in the next iteration. And I think, you know, your likes of Tesla and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, these these next gen type of businesses that yeah. are not as obvious as you would have thought at the outset. Um, and really, I guess behind that is, is what is the skill set? And it's great for me as, as a parent to, to read things like that, to understand, you know, from a skill set perspective is it's, it's not necessarily about studying geography and history and, and all those good things is I think there's a, a very unique and, and diverse skill set that's going to be relevant going forward. So for me, it's been a great read. Um, yeah. You know, I love the saying, uh, the, the, the future doesn't care how you became an expert. I love that, that notion. Yeah. I think that kind of, yeah. kind of sums up Absolutely. what you're saying um, Absolutely. in many respects. Look, I'm reading, I'm late to the party with this particular novel. It's actually the first work of fiction I've read in a very long time. Um, a novel by Gregory David Roberts, Shantaram. Hmm. Great book. So I'm halfway through that. Um, which yeah. is so what that's probably taking you a couple of months to get through because it's, it's actually a, literally a doorstop. Isn't it, it is mad, it is a doorstop, <laughs> but I've actually been going through it pretty quickly. Yeah, pretty quickly. Book. Um, of course, I, I don't get as much time with you know nonfiction as I'd like, but um, and I haven't done it in forever. And I think this was it was yeah great choice for me. I think yeah. But anyway, guys, with that said, uh, assuming that we're all loose and relaxed, let's jump into some highlights, shall we? Starting with some encouraging news out of Somalia, uh, Somalia's premier bank recently announcing at uh, the recent Mogadishu Tech Summit that they'll be starting a $1 million fund to invest in Somali startups. So they plan to deploy that money uh, in collaboration with iRise Hub. It's money they plan to deploy in collaboration with iRise Hub. Shout out to iRise Hub. This is great. A million dollars, obviously not a whole lot, but there are people literally um, risking their lives to to beef up the innovation scene out there. What do you guys reckon? A million dollars, yeah, not that yeah, from much. From one bank, it's, I mean, it's not bad. Um, yeah, I'd love to see what comes out of that. And, and Yeah, yeah. I'm usually quite cheeky about, oh, please, it's going to take far more than a million dollars to fix pretty much any problem worth investing in, um, in any country, never mind a place like Somalia with, with you know, has a, 
obvious challenges around infrastructure and and security and other things. But I, you know, my heart's out there with you guys. Uh, we feel your we feel your heat. We feel your heat, Mogadishu. Now, uh, moving on, but staying with East Africa, the Kenyan government earmarking just under $10 million to, uh, quote-unquote, stimulate local phone manufacturing and software development. Yeah, apparently um, the cabinet secretary of the ICT ministry hopes uh, that this move will cut down mobile phone imports. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's a bit of a pipe dream. Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let Grant onto this. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, it's... Yeah, look, in reality, I think, um, you know, the, the competitive landscape in terms of kind of entry-level mobile devices, which is really your mass market target, is is, is owned by the, the Eastern manufacturers. And unfortunately, their balance sheets are substantially bigger than $10 million. So I don't know what he intends to, yeah. to achieve with $10 million or, or what first prize looks like. But yes. uh uh, great idea uh, in reality. Aspiration, it, it, it maybe. Feels, it feels a bit more like a donation than it does an investment. <laughs> but, but I think what are the skills needed to, even if it was $100 million or a billion dollars, are the skills there to deploy it? Absolutely. And if you look at what, I don't know, Apple or Samsung do, they don't even own their own manufacturing facilities. So I don't know what, what he plans to do with $10 million. So again, you're speaking to something that I think is also interesting to to think about. As an aspiration, is this even a healthy one? Is it a, a constructive aspiration to have, you know, for your country's tech and innovation ecosystem from a business model standpoint? I mean, as a former consultant, yeah. you're, already point, you're already pulling some of the, <laughs> you know. I don't think it is. Um, I think because what, and and don't want to sound too negative, but the ultimate outcome is it's not going to be enough money. There's going to be need to be more money. And if there isn't more money, then it fails. Then the failure is seen, look at what happens when we invest in these sorts of things. And then more money doesn't get allocated to to sectors that really do need it, whether it's fintech or insurance or yeah. mobile banking, whatever that is. And this um, will fail, unfortunately. So, it's, it's going to be one of yeah. those things where unless you sort of spin it, um, it will fail and it will be just another reason why government tried but you know yeah. has decided this isn't working quite and it sounds yeah. like a, a good pr number it was a billion shillings yeah that's a great number it's a great number. <laughs> sounds good sounds good well listen um talking about you know speaking of billions um airtel africa um a wholly owned subsidiary of Barty airtel has raised 1.25 billion dollars and this is pre an ipo they have in the works six investors including temasek warburg pinker softbank group, quite notably. And of course, Singtel of Singapore participated in the deal. If you're not familiar with Airtel, a mobile telco um, with operations in Chad, DRC, Gabon, Kenya, Malawi, Madagascar, Niger, Tanzania, Uganda, Zambia, and I'm just naming some. So the, the, here's the story, guys. They were they were valued at $10.7 billion in 2010. You know, Aaron Fu, Missed Africa MD, asked the question on, on LinkedIn the other day, did Singtel and Temasek just pick up Airtel Africa for a steal at a $4.4 billion valuation? Or is the ship pretty much sinking? And uh, is this just too much to try and save, salvage, or even turn into a peach? What do you guys reckon? Mobile telcos... A rough business to be in. I don't know. I don't know what's worse right now. Consulting, mobile telephony. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. rough, yeah? Now look, I, I think mobile has longevity. I, I think we all agree with that. And I think when you look at the continent in particular, is it's it's the fundamental interaction with the consumer. And I, and I think, you know, owning that that enablement platform is, is key. 
I think, you know, to your question around, you know, going from the 10 to the 4, you know, the guys from SoftBank, for example, yes, they have a fund that is almost unheard of. Yeah. You know, it, the fact that they are kind of following on is is interesting even at that valuation. So, you know, it, it might question whether they're bringing the average price down or, or whatever the case may be. But, you know, for me, I think the interesting thing and, and where Airtel have actually been quite successful in the past is, is how do they layer on some of these value-add services onto the back end of the core kind of telephony infrastructure? And, and I think that's really where it gets interesting on the continent and, and particularly, you know, coming back to, to some of the stuff that we're looking at yeah. is – is how do we leverage infrastructure? How do we leverage the interaction with the consumer and, and the front-end interface and really bring some of these products, solutions, capabilities, enablements to the consumer on the back end of that of that stack? So this is a future play. This is not about, you know, a snapshot of this business in a moment in time. Uh, my view saying. is I, I would struggle to get to a 4.4 VAL even now. Yeah. Um, it, for me, it, it's got to feel like kind of a net present value. Yeah. I don't know what your view is. Yeah, sounds like they're they're raising capital to to reduce their debt in India because the businesses have sort of switched where India was successful and the Africa business was struggling. Now yeah. the Africa business is doing well, and the India business is struggling. So so they may be doing some financial engineering and trying to reduce their their debt loads. Um, yeah. But it is a vote of confidence in the in the importance yeah. of this as an asset that will will be key to facilitating future value extraction in these markets. 100%. And I think the the, the infrastructure plan, that's exactly what you're doing, Grant. It's, it's building off that for, for additional value adds, and it's going up and down your value chain with that set uh, infrastructure to deploy that. Well, let's talk about uh, Airtel's competitor. I think they're second to MTN on the continent. I could be wrong about that. And speaking of MTN, uh, Nigeria's Minister of Finance, Zainab Ahmed, um, tweeted the other day that um, uh, nobody is next because we can't afford for this kind of incidents to keep happening. The the minister was responding to questions of, you know, who's next in as far as foreign entities clearly being taken to task by Nigeria's central bank in what some are perceiving as a witch hunt or uh, an undue uh, attempt to to basically milk them for everything they're worth. It's quite interesting that the the country's uh, finance head, obviously not seeing eye to eye with with the, the central bank in that country. Uh, MTN, in the meantime, has maintained that, uh, you know, the central bank of Nigeria doesn't have the power to sanction it. And, you know, some reports claiming that MTN certainly maintains internally that, you know, they're really being taken to task over nothing. They've done everything they can and should be doing in terms of keeping their house nice and tidy. Yeah, MTN and Oringa, this is sort of a follow-up to, to to the story which we touched on last time where we knew far less. Interesting times to be a, a large African multinational in Nigeria. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, obviously MTN is kind of held the limelight in that respect for, well, I guess, all the wrong reasons, yeah. you know, of the, the recent past. But that being said is, is I think, you know, as a business, MTN is, is a solid, solid business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they've got great leadership in, in Rob Shooter. And, and I think, you know, but it is a problem that they need to resolve. And, and I think it does feel that there is a substantial amount of political influence and political sway and, and political pressure being applied 
um, on the business. And Which comes with the territory, let's be honest. I mean, No, fair enough, yeah. fair enough. But, I, you know, what is interesting is to say, you know, where you are getting the impression um, from relatively influential stakeholders to say, you know, this cannot become a trend. Um, well, the minister saying it will not become a trend. Yeah. In fact, the minister saying it's getting annoying how often I'm asked about NTN as soon as I open my mouth about prospects uh, in my country, you know, which is fair. And I'm pretty sure, like you say, because it's it's a robust business with all this potential infra- infrastructure potential, they'll figure this out. I'm, I'm not too worried about that. Well, moving on to another large Nigerian giant. In fact, you know, the, the poster child for what a unicorn can look like. Africa's very first unicorn, of course, Jumia, um, the e-commerce giant. Um, yeah, look, plans afoot to um, IPO that business. It's it, it's not quite clear where that might happen. Likely the US, you know, this, to my mind, playing into the into the global trend led by the US, I'd, I'd have to say, of uh, non-profitable companies IPOing like crazy, albeit fewer companies IPOing than ever before. If if I gave you a busload of money right now and this IPO was happening tomorrow, how much of it would you be putting in uh, sinking into Jumia, do you reckon, given the fundamentals or the sadly lacking, uh, you know, fundamentals that speak to like solid business value uh, of a business like Jumia? I think I'd, I'd struggle to to allocate a significant chunk to it. Um, even I think, even as a play for the future, for where Africa is going, and but then, you know the bullish yeah. a bullish mindset towards yeah. this market that has so much potential. But I mean, that to me is private equity. Then um, it's not I. You don't IPO to to get because then you're getting liquidity and you've got investors looking at very short term metrics. I'm not investing or most investors wouldn't be investing on a listed equity for the ten year play. So which which begs the question, why is this happening? It's really interesting because, I mean, Grant, you can say there's so much of money available to invest. So why wouldn't they go to private capital? Maybe IPOing is cheaper. Debt is probably out of the question. Maybe Um, we have investors who want to exit exit. without any Um, value being realized or any substantial value being realized. Is that a problem? I'm sort of sneaking in a a throw forward to our discussion later, but... um, I mean, some people argue that's business. It could be, but it could also just be a signaling effect where now Jumia is a listed company and that comes along with the halo effect on their business um, partners that they want to to deal with and, and that helps them in yeah. that respect. But yeah. Maybe future capital raises or, or um, rights issues coming down the line, maybe they have longer plans. I really struggle with e-commerce on, on the African continent because of your last mile delivery, your your logistics, yeah. um, throwing everything out. Yeah. And I suppose, um, you know, I've also heard it argued how good this might be for, in a sort of backhanded way for Africa's tech ecosystem, if something like Jumia got listed. Um, basically, it would be a blueprint for, hey, you know, the Silicon Valley brand of venture capital works on the continent. Look, you can put money in here and exit at IPO. And of course, this works here too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely one way of looking at it. I, I think for me, it just feels a little bit like them putting the cart before the horse. I think the enabling environment in Africa is not really conducive to scale uh, an e-commerce or, or an e-tailing kind of vehicle at this stage, in my view, anyway. Um 
you know, the the IPO route, uh, I think, is interesting. I I would question whether they would even have been able to raise sufficient capital in, in the PE markets. Um, you know, they're very revenue sensitive, you know, to the Naira and, um, you know, I, I, that is a concern. Um but that being said, is you know, if you talk ten years down the road, and and assuming that um, you know these these players like ourselves are, are successful in what we're trying to achieve in terms of solving kind of this this digital divide, and ultimately being able to engage with the consumer in real time, mm-hmm. and Rochelle, to your point, in, in in solving that last mile, which I agree with you is is critical. Um, absolutely, there's a demand. I mean, the the consumer market is out there. The demand is out there. So there's no reason why it couldn't be successful. Well, I it just, couldn't be. It couldn't be ten years from now. Africa's Amazon or something. Look, I, I think if you if you box clever, you could get pretty close. Um, that being said, is if you you then have the challenge of having solved the infrastructure, the delivery, and the logistics and the communication with the consumer. Why are you going to be different to Amazon? Yeah. Amazon can just piggyback on the back end wow. of the infrastructure that's now been enabled. Yeah, that's absolutely so true. What about the, the the counterparts in South Africa? So loot and take a lot, get, loot loss making, take a lot, getting huge investment from Naspers, Naspers walking right? away from yeah. Premier. Let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about how Naspers is like. Well, <laughs> we're good. Um, continue to to invest in e- in other e commerce players, like we'll talk about in a bit, but. But going uh, with Jumia, we're not so sure anymore. Wait, am I mixing Jumia up now with with Conga? Sorry, I'm mixing Jumia up with Conga. My bad, taking all that back. But yeah, so I mean, Naspa is showing that um, they're not nearly as bullish as the people backing Jumia, uh, and and showing showing so by by you know just you know what do you say disinvesting? What's the word? Uninvesting? What do you deinvesting? What do you call it when you take your investment out? Selling. <laughs> so, yeah. with Naspers selling with Naspers actually selling their um their stake in Conga which of course is uh, Jumia's largest competitor in in, in Nigeria. Look, uh, what I'll say uh, what I will say about this in as much as there's a lot I don't like about what, how this deal looks and feels and 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 all that and some of the trends that it it normalizes or potentially normalizes. I will say that overall I can see how if you are bullish uh, and your bullishness is based on sort of the macros of, you know, the African story. I can see how you might vote Jumia in the sense, you know, they've built a brand, they, you know, um, even if Amazon were to swoop in sometime later, it could be a flip card situation where they get bought. Um, I can see value. Um, I just see a bumpy ride to that value. And, and it's a longer term play. It's a much uh, longer you know, term play. I think it's probably longer than, than my preferred horizons anyway. Yes, yeah. yes. I think for a lot of people that might be true. How about the International Finance Corporation, a, a member of the World Bank Group, uh, considering making an equity investment of up to $3 million in Nigeria's logistics startup, Kobo360? We have a fan of that business. I love this. Uh, in you, Rochelle. Yeah. I think um, this is a... Yeah. The, you know, we talk about disrupting businesses and the next wave of financial inclusion. For me, this is hugely valuable on so many respects. So from our perspective, we've got a built-on company. We bought a truck. The truck drives down to Cape Town once a week, comes back empty. Mm. Um, so the asset utilization is not great, but you do it because your margins are, are high enough to so say that you can afford it. But now, if you can get 
your your assets on demand and for the driver there's there's much higher utilization you've got a truck going full to your destination and then they match you with someone at the destination to fill it up so that it comes back full as well that drops your price your cost your logistics and then maybe that enables e-commerce i think for us what we've seen the one of the highest hurdles to to growing an e-commerce business you know hair care company is logistics it costs us an insane amount to deliver products to consumers um and with things like this th- this would be hugely valuable for retailers consumers uh, e-commerce um yeah is it fair to say that um as you know as such a capital obviously not tech focused per se as an investment outfit you would consider a smart maybe tech yeah forward play in the space as perhaps maybe even your first uh, entree into that yeah. sphere and and that's the the thinking about planning for for next year where we've learned a lot in these last two and a half years um, just remind people like what what you currently have so we've um, got a hair care business that primarily started off as e-commerce and now is going on to retail shelves it's called native child uh we've got a built-on company called stoffelberg built-on uh launching with clicks and then we've closed dried meat or jerky business for those of you listening Sorry, and going yeah. what the heck is built-on yeah <laughs> um much better than jerky though yes um, yeah jerky is strange and then two footwear businesses so so looking All at very logistics heavy yes okay. um so the evolving thesis for us is yes let's keep focusing on consumer goods agribusiness but maybe there's something around business enabling services the 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 friction within the system that we could solve by investing in a kobo 360 and what that does they don't necessarily just have to uh, service our portfolio there's obviously a wider business around that but it just makes it so much easier when you have a trusted uh, partner that you can rely on Yeah look I mean Cobra 360 was accepted into uh Y Combinator's 2018 class and they also raised 1.2 million in pre-seed funding uh shout out to their uh founder and head honcho over there Obi Ozo there was also the side to the story that made me think you know why is the IFC interested in this particular in this particular outfit I mean um it it also made me think and this is a bit of a stretch I don't know if this you know how much this factored in but the role of you know their investment filters or biases or even pattern matching and how being invited to join Y Combinator is still for many investment outfits like the sort of cosign of note that signals investability without even you know uh, without question almost in many circles what is your sense uh, craig around filters and investment uh, sort of biases and perhaps the pattern matching regimen you've observed on the continent and what goes in or 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 doesn't into deciding what's worth your money your time and your your focus look it's a good question because you can spend a hell of a lot of time chasing shadows and that's anyway you know that's that's not only on the continent i think you know for me and and in speaking you know from myself in you know this role but also you know numerous roles previously is i think First and foremost is you got to understand what you're good at and you also want to understand what you want to be good at um and staying disciplined in that. I think um 
you know, from an investor portfolio perspective is is defining your strategic intent and understanding where you want to play and and kind of where you want to go horizontal versus where you want to go vertical and 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 how does that work and and in the world of limited resource where would you kind of double down I think is important you know when you look at the at the continent I think what I tend to find um, and and this is a big generalization but I've come across it numerous times is you find players that are very niche that solve problems for here and now in a particular industry and they create a lot of hype around it and they, they do raise money and they get a lot of investment and they get a lot of interest you know the challenge that i have for that and i think a challenge that a lot of investors have is where you get into an environment um, that's not future proof um, that is not industry agnostic that is not geographically agnostic it limits your ability to scale and and ultimately that's you know success is driven by scalability and you know the there are a couple of questions i guess you could ask in terms of when you when you're going through that vetting process around to your question is is you know how much time or effort do you spend on this and for me it fundamentally comes down to your ability to scale i think um and scale clever you know it, it's you don't want to get into a situation where um, you know, it's it's not margin accretive to grow your business, and 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 fortunately in Africa is, and the nature of Africa is is it's it's difficult, you know. And you come back to the logistics scenario is, you know, delivering product is difficult. It's expensive. Delivering services is difficult, and it's expensive, and that all plays into the feasibility and the appeal factor of assets. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I think. I don't want to generalize because because I do believe you need to ensure that you know you you look at each asset in in its own particular nuance and its its own value and kind of pros and cons. But if I were to to press you and say, I mean, there, there are quite a few logistics startups out there, not all of them accepted into Y Combinator. Does that somehow signal to you this is one to to make a phone call to? Or? Look, I like the idea, and yeah. and you know, I was, I was going to. And kind I mean, of, for better for worse, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. But I mean, uh, but I, I was going to kick Rashil on the knee, yeah, 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 because yeah. I, you know, because we, we should talk because Logitech and logistics and and technology and logistics is one of the key fundamental pillars and in, in industry verticals that we're looking to expose ourselves to yeah. because it solves so many problems for so many industries and it's scalable. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a really interesting space and, and absolutely that would definitely be something but I'd ever do. How much, how much weight would you put on if a company came to you in your pipeline search, someone with a specific incubator, accelerator or investor, if their previous rounds or their previous support came from Y Combinator, would that influence your due diligence or your, your view of the company? Same question, different way. And, yeah, yeah. and, and I think the answer is yes. I, I think it yeah. gives you confidence to a certain extent. But that being said, is and, and I mentioned it at the outset yeah. of the chat, it's is not, that my investment committees are, you know, sure. Grant's got to put his name to something. And, and would it give me confidence that they've been involved in incubation and or that, you know, that they've been stress tested previously? Absolutely. Is it necessarily going to change the breadth and depth of, of a DD that I would do? Probably not. Yeah. I have a different, slightly different view because we look at much smaller businesses. So you see a lot more companies applying, and this is the white paper that Andila shared with me, but the, yeah. the hubs and incubators. Um, oh, yes. Shout out to Hyber and Thomson Reuters and, and the yeah. rest of that. Um, I'll actually find it and just shout out the name of that paper. Cool. Yeah. Um, I think when you see small startups 
applying to these programs and the, the terms in which they get investment or if, if they get it at all. It's usually just support. I can't understand the the motivations and incentives for hubs and incubators to, to grow businesses. Um, I think the struggle that we have in terms of finding pipeline and, and good investable companies, and I think that's broadly speaking across South Africa, what is happening in these companies and why are companies or why are startups applying to them for support and then what's the outcome? So I, I'm hesitant when someone says they've joined a incubator accelerator. Well, what was the value that you got out of that? What equity did you give up or what? What's your yeah. growth trajectory yeah. been? I think there has to be a lot more. It probably raises more questions on my side than than if they weren't part of that program. Except in this case, we're talking white. Why come it? But I think yeah. the the point. I think it's worth it's worth interrogating still. No, and 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 you bring up a very valid point. And and personally, I've never been a huge proponent of incubators and hubs because I don't believe their success rate has been fantastic and. I think quite often a lot of these startup businesses um, go into these incubation environments not really understanding what they want to achieve out of it. Um, And all too often, their fundamental goal is to raise money. And that is not the purpose of an incubatory environment. You know, it's, it's there to enhance your skills that you don't have as a startup business. It's there to network. It's there to... To kind of fundamentally understand how you take your business, you know, forward over the next two or three years, and what you need to do to to make it successful. Um, so, you know, for me, I think um, you know this is a different example and one that has been stress tested, and I think the model is is relatively self explanatory and quite easy to understand. But I think you know, and and I and I do caveat this in that you know we are not seed or, or venture capital guys you know so so inevitably the investments that we tend to get excited about have sufficient data points behind them to kind of give us comfort that we know with a relatively high level of confidence that we know what we're getting into um but but look there's there are some great hubs out there there are some great incubators out there and there's some really good businesses that have come out of them but back to your to your comment Rachel, is is what have you had to sacrifice to get there? And and I think all too often desperation sets in. You're starting to run out of money. You kind of you you hitting closed doors, and you don't really know how to network. And you also you have maybe misaligned expectations of what participation should deliver. Absolutely, you know. So you make you make a a, a judgment call on the basis of a flawed perception of outcome. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the the reason I raise this is because I suppose um, this is more a um, an ideological debate in a sense where I'm like, on some level, I'm concerned that we are outsourcing the priorities of ecosystem growth that we should actually be shaping as a continent, you know, and that should be rooted in in actual business value. And I think no shade um, against Y Combinator in this particular case. I mean, their track record stands for themselves, but if it came right down to it, I'd sooner trust my money with you, Rachel, than Y Combinator's fund because of my fundamental belief in your commitment to market-relevant value creation. I just don't trust necessarily that some of the doctrines that you know Silicon Valley stands behind in terms of like creating value and the narrative around 
what a successful business may or may not be. Sure. Um, because there's a lot, you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that's also a good tease for your, for your, your big talking point about is VC a Ponzi scheme, right? So who do you yeah. trust? Yeah. Do you trust Secha Capital to be the investor and then mark up the round? Would you trust for the next round for Kobo 360 because they've gone through the IFC's vetting process and their growth, then do you trust them? As who, the next who, and IFC obviously yeah. trusting that they've been stress tested yeah. by Y Combinator, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose it's, it's it goes without saying that Y Combinator wouldn't touch them if they didn't perceive Silicon Valley level scaling potential and sure. and and sort of uh, exponential growth potential and all that kind of stuff. So listen, shout out to um, like I said earlier, shout out to uh, Matter Innovation, Hyber, Audience Net, and. Uh, uh, who have put together a pretty awesome report. We'll have it in our show notes, the Africa Innovation Paradigm, a report they've uh, prepared for Thomson Reuters on fixing the ecosystem for the many, not the few, as they put it, an assessment and framework for transformative change. We're really just skimming the surface of some of the ideas that are put forward in in that particular document. And we will no doubt be returning to some of these things in future episodes. But yeah, really nice to get your guys' view on, on that. Um, moving on now to South Africa, uh, where you know Amazon Web Services has announced that uh, new data centers will be set up in Cape Town come 2020. They should be ready to go in the first half of the year. Uh, currently, AWS um, provides 55 availability zones across something like 19 infrastructure regions worldwide with another 12 availability zones across um, four regions in Bahrain, Hong Kong, Sweden, and uh, of course the U.S., also expected to come online in the coming months. So this is really interesting. Um, you know, reading the press release, they talk about, you know, their satisfaction with the fundamentals that inform where cloud adoption is going on the continent and how this is a good time. Of course, they're not here first. Well, they've been here in, in some shape or form, but it likes of IBM doing their thing here on the continent in terms of data centers, et cetera. But uh, all, all in all, good news. I mean, this plays into the infrastructure space. You would probably most interested in, you know, as far as your, your partnership with Convergence Partners, Grant? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, and we mentioned it earlier, I think the world is going platform. The world is going everything as a service. Yeah. Um, and and really cloud is, is the fundamental enabler for mass adoption of that. So, so great news. I think, um, you know, the my friends at, at Silicon Cape, you know, they've obviously done a lot of work, you know, Back from day dot yeah. to get to get a lot of interest and a lot of hype around uh, what we believe um, you know is is on offer and the potential that that the region actually has and and I think the fact that uh, the likes of Amazon have kind of adopted that is really really interesting and I, and I think in in the the medium to long term is is huge kind of tick box in terms of, you know, is sub-Saharan Africa really a, a high growth opportunity? You know, this is a fundamental enabler of, of next generation growth. And and I think it's it's a great new story. The impact of players like Naspers, players like, you know, now foreign players like um, AWS coming in and sort of backing the story that Silicon Cape has started to tell and sort of holding that story down with a, with a very real business story. I mean, you don't get much bigger than Naspers, Africa's biggest uh, tech company by many metrics. They've been a big part in the background of ensuring that, you know, they support the notion of entrepreneurs plugging into a very real scene and into a very real business scene. You know, I was reading recently some of the numbers um, just 10 years ago, 
uh, Nasper's revenue was uh, 89% of it made up of uh, publishing and media, whereas today 79% of his revenue is derived from e-commerce and internet businesses, and uh, and that's growing. One would be remiss if you didn't point to to the influence of companies like that or real fundamentals of that nature to making a Silicon Cape more than just this lovely idea of, you know, making the Western Cape the place to be if you're in tech, you know? Yeah. So and I, look, think, and yeah. I think it's a good point because ultimately every startup is trying to create a business and a business is a big thing. A business is not an idea. It's not a product. There's a lot of stuff that goes into creating a successful business. And to your point is, you know, without the backing and, and the genuine support, and that's not only financial support, it's, it's genuine belief and, and investment into these types of initiatives with companies like NASPERS is, you know, the, a lot of these initiatives would never get off the ground. Again, to cite NASPERS, um, they've just announced that they'll be investing just over $315 million in South Africa's technology sector. Of course, the bulk of that is said to be allocated to the development of existing tech businesses like OLX and Take A Lot and uh, Mr. D Food. But apparently just under 95 million US dollars will be committed to something they're calling the Naspers Foundry. You know, I'm not going to stand here and, and, and sort of preempt how successful they'll be at sort of corporate-led innovation. But I think they've quietly been sort of sowing the seeds of, you know, we're part of this vibe and we're part of enabling it. And, you know, I can't hate that. Um, staying with Naspers, I think there are quite a few notable things news-wise that are worth sort of uh, noting as well. Um, they've been criticized, obviously, for being heavily weighted in their interest in Tencent, the, the famously uh, profitable Chinese firm, not too long ago, reduced their interest in that business by, yeah, by a smidge, um, netting them <laughs> netting them a cool $9.8 billion, uh, taking their interest. 30, how much? For 2%. Yeah, for like 2%. Yeah, no, nothing much. 2% of Tencent. The business um, that they bought for, what, $30 million? Yeah, crazy. man. That was crazy just insane, story. man. So via an accelerated offering to investors, they raised $9.8 billion, and they're definitely throwing it about. Uh, Nasper's We Buy Cars investment via OLX at $95 million US dollars. Um, Nasper is also uh, apparently betting that they can help create a new Craigslist by backing LetGo, the American Mobile Classifieds app, $500 million they're putting behind that. Of course, they've they've set out to to list and unbundle their video entertainment businesses uh, under the, the the banner of the multi-choice group. So multi-choice South Africa, multi-choice Africa, Showmax African, uh, Aditu, um, will will be under that banner on, on the JSC quite shortly. And then, you know, they're looking to increase their stake in Swiggy, which is strange because, yeah, well, I shouldn't say it's strange. I'd really love to be a fly on the wall in that boardroom. Like just the, you know, what's influencing their decisions to divest here and invest there and, so it'd be fascinating to understand, for example, why Swiggy, why an online delivery food service in in, in India, you know, and what, what sort of bets are they making long term beyond this? And um, all the while, people just baying at their heels going, you guys can do better. You can do better. You're a bad bet. You're a bad bet. Um, you're heavily weighted in, in areas that aren't showing growth. And yeah, what do you guys make of Naspers in general? I think it's, I mean, the, the thing through the discussion that we've been having is is how this enabling environment that you talk about helps the businesses that they they're underlying yeah. um and and for me that's the new wave of investing and and obviously speaking our own book as such a capital where where it's the skills transfer that's very important it's yeah. the the opening channels the the Stellenbosch effect it is yeah and I think it's what you're doing Grant it's it's having that 
physical backbone infrastructure that they can plug into. Um, it just makes the entrepreneur's life so much easier. Um, and I think for Nasperas, they've got some amazing people in the, the yeah. ecosystem to help them grow. And that's probably it. And a ton of money too. Yeah. I have to say like a year ago, I, I would have, I, you know, I would have been one of their critics, you know, one of their critics around, you know, just failing to to make the most of the advantage they have given their scale and really just how easily they can tap Oh, say like $9 billion at the snap of a finger. But I think I'm seeing moves now that make me think, okay, um, watch your back, everyone else in the world that's at their level, because they're not lying down. They will not lie down. No, I yeah. think it's, it's, it's very true. I think uh, they do have the luxury of a substantial war chest. Um, and I, I think also is their track record speaks for itself. These, these guys are the kings of pivot. Yeah. And you know they've they've successfully changed their revenue mix and their value mix um, into next generation assets, and, and I think that's really really interesting. So, you know, I agree with you. I think it's it's one to watch, and I've never been a massive proponent of the underlying Naspers business. So if you kind of looked at the the non ten cent piece, yeah. But I think now when I look at the asset base and, and what they're doing in terms of spinning off some of these businesses and and really absolutely, yeah. you know. So I I think it's almost to watch the space. I yeah. think um, with the war chest that they've got and the fact that they've got this very kind of next generation mindset at an executive level i, th- I think um yeah. i think it could be a, an interesting one listen angola we see you fam the south atlantic cable system uh recently went live it's 100 percent owned by angola cables it's open for commercial traffic it's the first a transatlantic link between africa and the americas according to the company you know the cable offers five times the speed of existing cable routings uh reducing latency from Fort Aleza in in Brazil to Luanda in Angola um and yeah so Luanda you can now connect to London and Miami with approximately 128 milliseconds latency sounds good to me man sounds good to me i'm hoping to meet um some of the people behind this company uh, fairly soon i hope that lands i suppose we need more you know points of presence across the continent this is good news but we could see more i guess yeah yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know, with us being relatively a fan in the space, I think the the infrastructure play is is kind of a fundamental building block in in kind of this next generation that we keep talking about. So, um, CCOM's got more competition. Absolutely, ah. but you know, competition's good. Uh, competition is good, and I think for us is uh, you know when we look at what is the next generation of the investments that we're going to make? I think, uh, you know, whilst we'll still obviously continue to invest in the core and that's the fundamental of the business and the mandates that, that we have, I think you're going to see a lot more exposure in terms of the, what does that infrastructure enable yeah. and, and how do we play a part in accelerating the delivery of that? I see, I see sort of uh, Luanda's story going the way of, you know, what's happened in Marseille in, in France with regards to, the business potential that infrastructure like this can deliver to a city. Um, if you're not familiar with Marseille, beautiful city, by the way, got to visit and uh, recently and definitely, um, you know, quite interesting to see how, again, as you say, infrastructure makes a massive difference. So well done to you, Angola. We would love to see what changes this is going to usher in for Luanda, for the region, for the country, certainly, and, and, and the rest of us nearby. Zambia's central bank has warned um, residents uh, against trading cryptocurrencies in that country. Well, they're joining a long list of countries on the continent that are, uh, that have uh, made similar warnings. Uh, Kenya, of course, quite notably. Nigeria, of course. 
you know, South Africa, quite interestingly, Swaziland, uh, actually renamed now Eswatini, more appropriately, I, I believe, um, have more favorable stances towards cryptocurrencies, which I think, which I think is a good thing. Um, if you guys were Reserve Bank governors um, or Reserve Bank uh, deputies or even finance ministers or deputies, you know, in pick any one of the larger countries on our continent, some of the bigger economies, maybe Ethiopia, Nigeria, uh, South Africa, you know, what would your attitude be? What's the most constructive standpoint to have around this? Because there are very real risks. We know that this digital assets debate is one we'll unpack in, in a future in a future series. Um, you know, the notion of digital assets has now been made synonymous with cryptocurrency, which again is also synonymous with just a wide range of very problematic, everything from very problematic to quite constructive and and clever, you know, all lumped into one thing. And of course, if you're if you're a regulator, you look at this and you go, if you're a Zambia, if you're a Zambian central bank official, you go, don't do it. But what would you guys do? Every time I'm on the show, you ask about crypto. And every time I say, I don't understand. I don't understand. <laughs> it's don't been a year and I still haven't wrapped your mind around it. It's quite interesting because I think that's actually part of the answer is, yeah. you know, what would I – look, I, first of all, let me caveat this. And I think there's zero likelihood I'll ever be a finance minister or anything. Like that. <laughs> but, but my advice is, you know, would almost be is understand it. You know, people are scared of stuff they don't get. Yeah. Um, and Rachel, I, I was in in kind of your shoes, you know, a year ago, and as you know, people were saying to me, well, "Are you invested in Bitcoin?" I'm like, well, "I can't invest in stuff I don't understand," mm-hmm. and and that kind of so triggered- not even a little bit like you don't have some lying around somewhere. So that was twelve months ago. Oh, that was twelve months. That ago. was twelve months ago when the price point. Was have you just joined Hodel Gang? <laughs> <laughs> you will have to if you if you invested last year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, so, so I think for me is is you know, and I almost take a step back from from the cryptos themselves. But the fact of the matter is, blockchain is here to stay, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think the sooner that regulators, whether they be financial or market or whatever the case may be, is the, the sooner they accept that and understand that. Um, the better. So, you know, blockchain is is a is a great enabling tool. It's a great security, and particularly in cybersecurity tool. Um, and cryptos really are just a derivative or a function thereof. Yeah. You know, from a regulatory regulatory perspective, it is difficult because yeah. there is a lot of anonymity on on the back of it. Yeah. Um, I also feel like there's a, there's also a misplaced desire to capture value in ways that are unhealthy um, to, again, the notion of just doing business in the way business should be done, which is value-led, you know, yeah. which is, yeah. and I think that might be, if I was a finance minister or a, a reserve bank governor, my concern that um, there's a reframing of value assignment, value capture, and that in the trade of value, mm-hmm. right, that's on the go right now. And a lot of it's not healthy, or formative to the digital economy we want to have. And so from that standpoint, I do really feel for them. I really do feel for regulators and, and policymakers who have to think about these things because on some level, yes, get out of the way of the innovators, let the market write itself. Um, but man, um, we, I think we have far less of a safety net than say a Taiwan or, a, mm. you know, or the US where, you know, this whole thing could implode on itself to absolutely nothing like 2008 style. And they'd still be okay. Hmm. We'd be holding a baby, you know, sure. uh, in a way that they, you know, other parts of the developed world aren't, or more developed world. So yeah, that's how I kind of think of it. In my in my, I, I have a I have some empathy 
for for you know governments like you know the Zambian government who are listening to this are probably going to go you tell them and <laughs> but no I mean yes to your point again we have to learn we have to learn I didn't get to this point of empathy by sort of watching from afar it was being around people it was buying a little you know a little wallet with like two rand in it of <laughs> Bitcoin it was just coming to to the sense of you know, you know, reading some of these white papers or parts thereof, uh, having smart friends who read them for me and things, having them on the show. And I think it's really important that um, policymakers see this as part of their role and a, a learning role. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going away. I think that's the it's fundamental away, is yeah. it's going to need to be regulated in some way, shape or form in the very near future because it's like it or not, it's here to stay. That's true. Shout out to you, Liquid Telecom, for completing the acquisition of CEC Liquid uh, Telecom. It's a Liquid Telecom Zambian subsidiary. The telco has bought um, the remaining 50% stake from the Copper Belt Energy Corporation. Liquid Telecom, serious about this. Cape to Cairo, we're going to dig up Africa and and sort of lay fiber and and uh, bring our our network footprint to bear. What do you guys make of, of Liquid Telecom's uh, moves in this space? Yeah, look, you know, and it comes back to an earlier comment that I made is, is you know, any business who's investing in the enhancement of infrastructure and the, the extension of the breadth and reach of uh, of enablement, love. Yeah. it's like perfect, guys. Keep running. Um, you know, an interesting point is their their intentions in Zimbabwe around kind of creating digital digital access for students. Yeah. You know, one of the the other areas we're looking at is education and edutech. I think mm-hmm. you know for us it's really interesting, but with out the likes of our friends at, at Liquid, it's it's incredibly difficult. It's, it's, it's you know, a pipe ed, dream, actually. Edutech only exists if someone can access the tech. And and I think, uh, you know, for us, we believe that is a fundamental enabler to to empowering the next generation of Africans. Um, and, you know, whether it be through education, access to services, yeah. um, you know, if, if – our friends at, at Liquid or anyone else out there is, yeah. is continuing to invest in the infrastructure that's going to enable that. Kudos to them. Dig on. <laughs> dig on. Dig, dig on. on. <laughs> please leave my pavement. Yeah. Can I pause you for my keys yes. to the bathroom? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so we'll have to pause. Are you struggling? <laughs> All right. So, guys, let's speed through. To South Africa now, where the equity crowdfunding uh, startup, Uprise.Africa, has secured funding from the Silicon Valley firm Nexus Ventures. They haven't disclosed the amount, which we hate. I usually don't even speak of matters that aren't disclosed in that in that area. But the reason I'm, you know, I'm, I'm bringing this up, and I know you, you're plugged into some of the, the folks behind uh, this deal, or at least involved in it. So you might have some insight, Rochelle, but... Um, the reason I'm bringing it up is crowdfunding as as a trend, clearly finding some traction on the continent. I have to admit, I was one of the you know the the less than optimistic or, to- or mostly skeptical you know types when it came to this to this notion. Um, where it would be positioned? Is it a good look for a, a firm to sign up for crowdfunded you know finance? You know. It, what does it say about the founding team and the inability to sort of bootstrap to a sort of sustainable level? But it seems to be an idea that's uh, gaining traction. Yeah. I mean, I think Visa and the team have done an amazing job. Um, I think I'm with you on on the crowdfunding. 
I've sort of pivoted that it offers additional avenues to raise capital for startups, uh, maybe less expensive, more democratized version of that. Yeah. Um, and everything that I've seen to date has been, I don't know, 100,000 rand, 200,000, 500,000 rand. So nothing really meaningful. Mm-hmm. But from this, this press release, they've raised 3.9 million rand for, for a brewery um, and the funding at a valuation of 60 million rand. That's really exciting. I think this is, this is how you do crowdfunding properly, I think, for, yeah, for responsibly. Real, yeah, and, and real startup size businesses that need the funding um, rather than these small piecemeal. Well, versions. with you, I mean, this is certainly in your space. When you think of the brewery, that's kind of like a business... That would tick all the boxes for you, FMCG, yeah. you know, the size and scale of the things I know you're interested in. Yeah. Do you see a platform like um, Uprise.Africa as being potential Source of pipeline. No, well, I think source, source of pipeline, pipeline because I think the, the previously looking at other crowdfunding platforms where you're raising 100,000 rand, where's the company going to grow to next? Even if they want a million rand, it's still too small for most players. But if you're looking at companies raising three, four million rand at a time, when they grow to the next round of funding, that's going to be at a Hmm. eight, then maybe they need eight million rand, whatever it is. Then it becomes more interesting to a lot more players. Yeah. Well, staying with important investment news, the education fintech play Prodigy, a UK company. And the reason uh, they've made it into our, our news, you know, our African newsreel is because, of course, they, you know, Rand Merchant Investment Holdings, corporate investment arm AlphaCode has invested in that particular company. Now, really interesting play here. They've landed uh, a billion dollars worth of financing in 12 months. And get this, it's not private equity, it's debt, right? It's a, it's a line of credit. Uh, the financing consisting of $900 million in institutional debt facilities provided by Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, and others. And then the remainder, of course, coming from other investors, including schools, family offices, and uh, high net worth individuals. Yeah, I mean, for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, Prodigy Finance, they're essentially a fintech platform that enable financing for, you know, international postgraduate students who attend participating business schools or postgraduate institutions. And uh, I actually met someone who who had who had financed her MB, her her masters at Oxford via this very platform, and it got me thinking: When is it good to do what um, Prodigy is doing here with this debt play? The, the debt play is more a credit facility, so that they can access more consumers. It's not a direct investment into the business; it just allows them to to deploy a lot more. Um, capital. Uh, it does require them to be pretty confident about their their business model, right? Yeah, um, and I, I love the impact story of Prodigy, where where they're taking credit risk scoring in countries that the banks maybe don't have that information, and using a smarter version to do that. And just a personal anecdote: when when I went to go study overseas, I went to a bank and they offered me a hundred and fifty thousand rand loan at eighteen percent interest. And if you think of the fees that you pay overseas, that's not even 10% of, mm-hmm. of what it's going to cost you. Yeah. And at 18%, yeah. um, something like this is, is hugely valuable. Um, and I think hopefully the students from Africa going overseas will come back, bring those skills home. And, and that's how we, we end up growing the continent. Yeah. But to your question, VC versus debt, I don't know. Yeah. I think it depends it on your business. Depend. Yeah. I know you'd say that because you know <laughs> what you're investing. <laughs> yes, because you're a consultant also. Yeah. But, but I mean, you're also in the business of basically, I suppose you're building a business that, that involves sort of essentially deploying VC. So yeah. on some level, you're kind of biased. Sure. But um, yeah, what do you reckon? A couple of things. I think 
first and foremost is kind of what stage is your business at? It's like, so how much do you need? How many data points do you have? What are you going to use the money for? And the second thing is what comes with the money? Because that's also critical from an investment perspective is, you know, what is your requirement in terms of access to your finances, in terms of their skills and their learnings and and their networks? Um, You know, if you're confident that you're in a scale-up stage, then, you know, by all means is, you know, come and speak to us and, you know, we can can give you money. We can't necessarily commit in terms of excessive amounts of times or access to our networks and the like. Um, but if you're really early stage and you maybe seed and you maybe start up or whatever the case may be is, you know, and I'm going to say quite often, but it, it may be sometimes the access to the RP behind the money is actually more important, more valuable to your business growth story than the actual rands and cents. So, you know, for me, I think it's it's a balancing act is is understanding a where you can find your money in terms of the stage of your business, but then also Personally, almost more importantly, is what does your business need outside of the money to get you to point A? Gotcha. Well, let's speed things along, guys, because, um, you know, there are a couple of things I want us to touch on before we delve into the question. Is VC a Ponzi scheme? All right. Well, Standard Bank in South Africa has confirmed that they'll be launching a mobile virtual network operator. A quick one, guys. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Do you think this is a plan? Uh, they're no doubt looking over at First National Bank going... That might be working for them um, or certainly a play to to taking on mobile telcos who are quite happy to veer out of their lane into ours. What do you guys reckon? I think it's interesting. I think it's uh, it opens up a whole new client base. It opens up a whole new distribution channel. It's an expensive way of doing it. Yeah. But to your point is, you know, the lanes are converging. There's no longer MVNO in one and financial services in another. It's, you know, the Safari common PESA kind of model is, is now... Yeah, in in real terms. So I think it's interesting whether it's good or bad. I I think only time will tell. But um, I I personally think it's it's probably a good call. I wonder what's the the rationale behind it. Because initially they said when F&B was doing it, no, they're not really interested. Obviously, F&B has their own reasons. And when I was at F&B, it was around retention. So you, you want your cell phone number to be tied to your bank account so that your consumer stays longer with the bank but now with the the low cost of switching yeah I, I, I don't know maybe there's there's other reasons behind it maybe they're also setting up a future where you might switch banks the same way you switch mobile telcos yeah. and they're setting up for that future where when it comes down to it you're not moving from standard bank to mtn uh, but staying, staying yeah you know i don't know fair, maybe that's fair. part of it yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Malawi's plan to force businesses to accept digital payments. We don't have time to discuss that, but um, there's this plan on the books over there to try and insist on on retailers and traditional sort of uh, business infrastructure to to basically prioritize digital payments. This is, you know, I suppose they're trying to force uh, uh, innovation as far as financial inclusion. It, what do you guys think? In spirit, are you with uh, lawmakers in this regard? Do you think... You know, it's part of their fintech policy governance plan. Encourage good, enforce not so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think maybe a bit too early. Yeah, it might be too yeah. early. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, here's a nugget for nothing. Um, Andela apparently pays coders fifty percent. Their coders obviously on the continent fifty percent less than they would pay a coder in Silicon Valley. How do we know? Well. That's because, and the reason we're outing them in this way is because we asked them here on the show to give us information which they didn't, and they they shared it on a podcast in Silicon Valley. Uh, so we found that quite interesting. So here's a question for you, 
African Tech Roundup Village. How do you feel about arbitrage, talent arbitrage? Do you think it's right um, that an entire business model be based on the fact that you can get cheap labor here and basically service clients in other parts of the more developed world? Do you think that's right? Do you think that's that's cool? Is there a moral problem? Is it just good business? You tell us how you feel. We'd particularly love to hear from the likes of the folks at Andela, the folks at We Think Code, who of course are not for profit, so they have a slightly different model. But we'd love to hear from folks at and at Gebea. But in general, we'd love to hear from all of you. Give us a shout at African Roundup on Twitter, Facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup on Facebook. And of course, drop us an email if you'd like at hello at africantechroundup.com. Now, some quickfire things before we head into our discussion. Top executives leaving Facebook, the latest of which is Brendan Iribe, Iribe, the former CEO and co-founder of Oculus. He announced his exit most recently. Is it naive to think that you could sell something to Facebook and it not lose its soul? What do you guys reckon? This is a yes or no. Is it naive or is it not naive? Absolutely, naive. absolutely yeah. naive. Okay, so I am team naive as well. So good luck to all of you. It's turning into this whole trend around, you know, um, why I left BuzzFeed type situation where all of these former founders from the Instagram founders to, to the to the WhatsApp ones, to a whole bunch of other um, executives over there, all taking their turn in the media spotlight, sort of going, well, this is why we left. Uh, well, Boohoo to you, Mister. You know, most of you are billionaires, and we wish you well. Hopefully, you, your next round. Ah, there's a few, there's a lady on the list. <laughs> there's a lady on the list. So yes, um, so all the guys and girls who have just recently left, we look forward to seeing you do amazing things after you've left. Facebook, the data breach. They're in good company, folks. Um, Fifty million uh, accounts compromised. They're not alone. Cathy Pacific, FedEx, Orbitz, travel booking site, Twitter, T-Mobile, Uber, government, flipping everybody. Is our privacy overrated at this point? Yes or no? No, no. Um, I believe so too. But has the horse bolted in terms of protecting it wholesale? Yes or no? There's a way to go. Still, hackers are getting smarter. Yep. Yep. No idea. Okay, so yeah, no, he's not well. <laughs> Rochelle is non-committal. The horse probably has bolted. Yeah. He just doesn't want to admit it. Um, according to Bloomberg, smirk, uh, Spermico chips loaded with Chinese spyware have been used to hack Amazon and Apple servers. Apple, of course, totally denies this. They also deny uh, the fact that they're under some kind of gag order preventing them uh, talking about this. So Bloomberg, quite you know, hectically taking them up on this. Uh, at this point, it's one of the others lying. I mean, Apple's put out a very emphatic sort of public response to this. It's one or the other. Bloomberg is fake news or Apple is lying about their data security. Which one is it, guys? Who knows what to believe nowadays? <laughs> really, so it's a tough call to make, it's, right? It's a very tough call. I mean, pretty solid. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. Apple. Like, you got to they... assume they've tested those chipsets, and yeah. yeah. So it's very. I'm on the fence. Well, one thing is for sure: Apple has been fined by the Italian government for planned obsolescence. Um, they were hit with a 10 million euro fine. Samsung themselves also being hit with a fine, but smaller, five million euro. Look, it's it's official. These guys have been convicted of essentially um, flooding old, older devices with software that will slow those devices down and incentivize the purchase of new ones. Alongside this debate is also the fact that the likes of Apple, Tesla, and others, um, you know, you know, laws in America certainly coming online in certain states to prevent them from essentially preventing people from fixing their own devices or being overcharged for buying new things, you know, when you don't need to because, you know, you kind of have to because you can't fix it yourself. So, yeah. What do you guys reckon? 
uh, about that. Do you think this is fair? Apple about to appeal? Do you think Apple, as they have stated through their legal teams, didn't see this coming? They didn't have any intention of slowing down our devices, and this is not part of their business plan. So one or the other. Either Apple is really slowing down our devices to force us to buy new ones, or they're not. A or B? It's a consumable I think they either make a weaker screen or they slow your machine down. They've got to get you to the point of sale as quickly as possible. I think how do you sustain Apple's share price growth without you buying a device every year or two years? I agree. I absolutely agree. Shout out to you, Kareem, for being in the sights of Uber. Uh, Kareem, of course, the ride-hailing service from Egypt, according to anonymous sources close to the matter. Again, according to Bloomberg, if you believe them or not, <laughs> uh, the deal could value Kareem at about $2 billion, $2.5 billion. Other sources state that plan is, is stuttering. Are you in support of Uber's global trek to world domination? Yes or no? Yes. No. No. Airbnb wanting to share equity with home sharing listees. What's the story here, folks? Well, Airbnb wants to change how business is done. They want to truly uh, democratize, you know, what is so far a highly centralized activity, which is uh, the ownership of some of the most prized tech firms in the world. Airbnb suggests, you know, they'd like to share their shares with, you know, people who make their company work, i.e. the people who open their homes up to people. And the problem with that, of course, is the SEC and most other regulators around the world see this as a problem because that's just not how things have been done in the past. Are you a fan of this notion, Rochelle? I'm a huge fan. Um, And I think that the reason why the the SEC has a challenge with this is um, Airbnb's hosts aren't employees or shareholders. So how do you give them equity? So that's the the rule that needs to change. Um, But for me, this, this is a... I'm a huge believer in aligning incentives. Um, and this goes a long way to doing that, building loyalty on the platform um, and growing the company. I think it's a fantastic idea. Absolutely. I've come across a a great South African startup business, um, three incredibly smart guys who are doing just that. They, they're matching landlords and tenants and and empowering the communities around these neighborhoods, uh, you know, from a retail perspective as well and creating this real loyalty and engagement model with the loyalty aspect, obviously, but then also with the remuneration aspect and, and a data play around, you know, the better you are as a tenant, the more, uh, you know, discounting you can get or the more f- free perks and free QIs or whatever the case may be. So fantastic model. I think it's going to be a great business. So I'm, I'm a firm believer. So I like this because it leans into the whole trend towards steward ownership as a model of business ownership, as opposed to having disconnected, almost uninterested investors sort of try and invest in things in order, you know, to get like a buck out of a situation as opposed to actually have people who are invested in more ways than just the money they put in and the time they put in. But, uh, you know, in terms of that brand. So I like this for that reason. However, this also plays on some level dangerously into where China's going or China's (laughs) been for a while in as far as basically digitizing what it means to be a good citizen and a point system that allows you to to gain certain benefits as a citizen if you're a good quote unquote good citizen gamifying well. morality gamifying <laughs> morality that's the I love how you put that so I do think there are genuine concerns that regulators have to Fair observe enough. here um, in terms of determining how far this can go or should go gamifying morality I might have to use that at some point <laughs> yeah. if you don't mind yeah because what if the community just doesn't like you and starts to to, um, you know, what if a bunch of the community start to just give you bad ratings? Yeah, which so Don't then... you just have to worry about Big Brother, though? Oh, That's... oh my God. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it just doesn't sound, yeah. So there's ways this could go wrong. Yeah. 
there's ways this could go wrong, but I, I suspect this is good PR for Airbnb, who are all about democratizing travel and tourism. It's a good look for them. They probably know it's not happening anytime soon, um, but they've definitely made some headlines doing this. Yeah. So let's let's talk in the last few minutes we have about this notion of VC being a Ponzi scheme, question mark, is it? The American um, of Sri Lankan descent, Chamath Palihipatia. Um, Chamath is famous uh, is, is a famous venture capitalist and founder and CEO of Social Capital. He was an early senior executive at Facebook, joining the company in 2007. He left them in 2011. He's also an owner and board member of the Golden State Warriors, the basketball team um, uh, from uh, from the states. And uh, yeah, he's a billionaire. And um, I recently watched an interview he he gave uh, recently where he he basically said, you know, he he now believes firmly that the VC game is a Ponzi scheme. And up until recently, this guy ran a top two hedge fund in the US. In the last eight years, uh, you know, he's made double what Warren Buffett made in the first eight years of his company, Berkshire. So he's saying this at a time, not when he's like, you know, he's in a slump and things aren't working out and he's looking to pivot. He's looking for a PR pivot. In business terms, he's doing better than he's ever done. But as he puts it, ideas, people, doing things is more important than, you know, just having this insular investment debate about where and when to dump money on something, you know, how to chase great IRRs. And so, yeah, which begs the question, folks, I've got two investors in here. Is VC a Ponzi scheme? My initial reaction is no. Um, I, I agree with what Chamath is doing. Um, I think the way he's setting up social capital is the exact same way that we've set up. Set deconstructing up. social capital. Because that's what he's done. It, he started right? this yeah. big thing. He started the small thing, what it yeah. is now. And then it turned into this massive thing, yep. which he totally hates. Now he's dumped everything and he's now deconstructed sure. it to bring it back to what it was. So, so I agree with what he's doing and, and the hold co structure, holding company structure, where, where you don't have management fees and carry uh, or profit share. Um, so for me, that's the way that you align incentives with your investors, your investee companies. It just allows you that much more flexibility. I don't agree with the way he's done it. I mean, he helped build Facebook and then said, oh, Facebook's the worst thing in the world. Yeah, he, 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 helped he basically yeah. cracked all over there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, yeah. he's doing the same thing here. So maybe his approach I don't agree with, but I think the end result is, is something that I fundamentally agree that... Um, Chasing the the management fees just doesn't give you the right incentive to invest in the right companies, or and then it causes the follow on rounds and the up valuations that that you have to chase to to get bigger and bigger assets under management. So background, yes, to your point, he literally woke up one day and went, "I don't need you all here." Like he looked at his office and said, "I don't like these people. I don't need them here. I want to go back to everything I built before." And he basically says, "That's what I'll do." And because he's a billionaire, he could do that. And he broke a lot of hearts doing that. But um, like you say, it's an approach thing. Uh, but at this point, no LPs, great partnerships remain. He's picking investments based on value with no cap on the finance and growth support they need. Uh, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. What do you think, it, it, it doesn't at all. But I think we've got to kind of contextualize this up front is the guy's worth $1.2 billion. Yeah. Okay. And he's made that out of pure capitalism. So let's be pretty pragmatic around, you know, people in stone houses and all that good stuff. Yeah, you're like, so, you know, that's rich coming from you quite literally. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I, I think I understand his point and I do understand the challenges around up rounds and, and these, this artificial 
inflation of valuations and multiples and it does get crazy and 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 we've all seen it okay so you let's pause there and just unpack that a little bit so what what's unhealthy about what you just described so what's what's happening so it, it's very similar to to how he's defined it and, and i guess one of the concerns that he has is that the fundamentals of the business and the fundamentals that if you go back 10 years ago how you would value or evaluate a business no longer exist or they're no longer as weighted in the valuation cycle as what they would have been in a more traditional environment. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, okay, particularly in early stage where that's almost impossible. But the challenge that um, that I see, and I, and I guess the challenge that, that he highlighted and maybe the reason why I've kind of opened my eyes to it is you get into the situation where, where early stage investors have to start recognizing subsequent rounds to value up the assets in their book. And there is a fee attached to it and the like. And there is an element, particularly in the US, of this this kind of club. Also, of, the Jumia uh, thing we cited, the, absolutely. We cited earlier. Come with me. Basically, absolutely. Yeah, let's pump this up until all of us can exit with, Correct. with money in our pockets. But we don't necessarily have to have created value as part Correct. of it. And, and also, I think what you're seeing now is, is a lot more money coming into private equity out of the stock markets. I think there's a few companies being listed. And you're seeing a lot, particularly the big companies, their real value is being generated in the private equity space. Mm. So your likes of Uber, for example, mm. is, you know, they got a, what is it, an $80 billion valuation, whatever the case may be, is when they list is, that's not going to jump to a 200 or a 300. So all the real value is being created. So you are seeing a lot of traditional market capital being pushed into private equity, which is kind of driving this self-fulfilling prophecy of these crazy valuations because they want to be part of the action and, and they've they've got some serious capital behind them. Yeah. Is it real? You know stories sell. At this, this point stories, stories sell. Yeah, and right. and I think is, you know, in a way that they've never have done before. You know, you're seeing businesses IPOing at billions and billions of dollars that break even. They don't make any money. So there are no real fundamentals you can look to to kind of quantify or justify those levels of investment. So, you know, for me is, you know, is it a Ponzi scheme? There are a lot of kind of ticks out there that say, well, it could be. But then again, as you look at it from the other side, is is there really, really smart people investing in these businesses? You you may argue, and, and Jamal does argue, that there are alternate reasons for that. But, you know, I, I personally cannot believe, and, and I don't fundamentally believe that, the private equity or the equity industry as a large is a Ponzi scheme. It's just there's too many good stories out there for me to believe that. Also, I mean, I'll be honest, there's Rochelle and what Rochelle and Brendan are doing at Setcher Capital, which to me really just sounds like a, a microcosm of what Chamath is trying to do. Minus like the the showboating around, like just being, you know, doing things that matter and whatever, which is again, quite rich given how you are happy to make those money. But I think he was also quite honest upfront going, I need to get as rich as possible to make the difference I need yeah, to make, which sure. is, which doesn't make it okay. But I mean, to be fair, he, he's kind of walking the talk and, and being on brand. But I guess I, I, I'm, I'm citing you and giving you a kind of a shout out in the sense that where I'm like, um, I've seen how this can be done right, and and I think it's a little more challenging when you when you're trying to 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 wear a futurist cap and invest on the basis of a future none of us have inhabited, um, that will invariably feel so different to what any of us expect or you know anticipate, and in that sense, you know, you know, some of that speculation is justified and in fact warranted. Otherwise, we'll never 
we, th- there'll never be money or opportunity for any of us to dream and to try things that have never been tried before. But on some level, there's a lot of danger, when, especially when you consider real money coming out of formal systems flowing into really untried and untested territory. And I think the the, the point that he gives about 40 cents of every dollar going into these deals goes towards Google, Facebook, Amazon, because you're acquiring that growth. It's not natural. It's... Yes. So, so it's that, stimulated by all that money yeah. that needs you to be at a certain level of growth or traction by the next round. Yeah, exactly. Exactly for the next round. And that's unhealthy. Um, so I'm hearing you guys both say yes and no. Is VC a Ponzi <laughs> scheme? Yes and no, because it kind of depends. My answer is no. No. I also fundamentally say no, um, but I agree with what Chamath is now trying to do on the that's structuring. Because you, that's that, because we've done it, or we're trying to. That's do also it because as you well, guys like. are both good people, <laughs> and uh, I, mean, I can vouch for the work convergence partners and the value they've created. Also, family family offices tend to be about that value. They're not. They're trying to literally make the Oppenheimer name Absolutely. last into another hundred years. Absolutely. And I suppose the thinking there might be very different to say. Uh, the, the the average VC. It's yet. not traditional it's VC not or PE. Absolutely not. Yeah. And neither is is convergence partners. Absolutely. Also it's hybrid. all impact investment. Yeah. We have hybrids up in this building. <laughs> yeah. Like to think so. So folks, listen, we're going to have to leave it here. I want to thank you both one last time. I mean, how did we get all that in? That's incredible. Thank you so much for your views. First of all, um, one half of the founding management team at Setcha Capital, Rochelle Vallap. You know, shout out your homie, Brendan. You guys are yeah. co- co-MDs. In a in a pretty functional relationship, that you know, you guys should get a prize just for that. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan Mullen, of course, being the other half of Center Capital. Shout out to you, but thank you for being here. Thank you for um, having me, Rochelle. Really fun. And then, of course, Grant, the founder and CEO of PhilTech Consulting, uh, of course, in partnership with Convergence Partners and Stockdale Streets. Uh, shout out to the Oppenheimer family, you know, for letting you into their glow. Absolutely, yeah, they're Absolutely. going on a, a pretty solid, uh, you know. Yeah, their track record speaks for itself. Um, we'll leave it there, certainly. But thank you so much for being here, Grant Phillips. Absolute pleasure, guys. Thanks very much for your time. For sure. So one thing left to thank you, our audience, for tuning in. We love you, fam. You are our village. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any thoughts on any of the topics that we've touched on throughout this episode, you know what to do, folks. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at African Roundup. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. Yes, we are captured. We have to be on Facebook. And, of course, drop us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a voice note. Send us a voice note via email. Hello at africantechroundup.com is where you can do that. Uh, Otherwise, nothing left else to say except take it easy, Africa. Africa.